first and foremost, before I tell you about Dr. Finley, I will say that he is, uh, I think, gets at least a good portion of credit for saving my life. Um, and, and I'm, uh, of course, eternally grateful to him for that, but uh, we'll learn much more about what that means. Um, and I think Jonathan's philosophy of um, really being concerned, not just about extending life, but about quality of life. Thanks for joining me today for the very first episode of Craig's Cancer. This series in my life wouldn't have been what it is if I didn't have cancer many years ago. I spent most of my life working in the cancer industry. I've met many survivors and I've worked with the very best doctors. And this podcast will take you on a journey to meet the people I've met along the way. Dr. Finley is an internationally recognized um, authority in the management of children, adolescents, and young adults with brain tumors. Following his training, he held positions at Stanford University, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and New York University. Um, and he is mo- most recently, he's been, uh, he was director of the neuro-oncology program at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. He was a professor of pediatrics at the Ohio State University and director of the neuro-oncology program at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Jonathan is a two-time cancer survivor, and I think he'll tell us a little bit about that, too. Oh, thank you. You've been very kind uh, in in your introduction. Thank you. I'd like to maybe turn a little bit to kind of our personal relationship and ask you about... um, (laughs) <laughs> those many years ago when when we met so i was diagnosed with a germ cell tumor which uh, you, you know you talk about the concept of mri well mri was just being you know introduced and was 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 available in new york city where i where i was diagnosed in 1992 but um uh something that i didn't understand so i had surgery and then um mount Sinai hospital where i had my surgery they said well you can you can stay here, we'll irradiate your brain, and it'll get rid of the, the cancer, but it'll likely leave you with some fairly significant deficits, right? And, but they said, or you can go down the block and you can um, investigate the one clinical trial in the whole country that's going on um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So I initially met one of your colleagues, um, who, to put lightly, was like talking to a used car salesperson. Um, she was, um, uh, and this is maybe one of the challenges I think, you know, you, you, I think, are very good at working with, if you will, sort of a broad population of children, adolescents, and young adults, but that's not the skill set that all of your colleagues have. Um, and, 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 you know, and I, I was at the time I was 27 and, and in the room with my parents, she's telling, you know, absolutely, I think probably over dramatized um, wh- why I should not stay at Mount Sinai and get my, uh, 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 um, cranial irradiation because I was going to end up like a head of broccoli, basically. So, but I ultimately decided to enroll and, and shortly after that, I think then, um, she left to another institution and you became the, the, the primary investigator on the trial. And what I'd love to hear is your perspective on, I mean, I will tell you that it was 
it was a very, very peculiar environment for me from the beginning, right? So I was a, a working person coming um, every month for my chemotherapy and then uh, during the week coming in for, for blood tests um, into this environment that was filled with little ones, with infants and young children um, and, and was not well set up, particularly for somebody like me. Um, and yet, you know, the, our team, your team was excellent and took very good care of me, but it was not the uh, particularly, um, uh, welcoming environment for somebody at my age. Well, you raise a number of very interesting issues there. Uh, increasingly, let me just address the issue of your age, for example. Increasingly, there has been this tendency for young adults who have tumors that are more associated with children, uh, like yours, uh, to be treated in a, at least by pediatric specialists uh, because they have greater experience in that regard. And that's become more acceptable. And I think it has also, in most, in many centers, if not most throughout the country, uh, the centers have adapted to be more comfortable and able and accommodating of uh, what we call the adolescent young adult, and that's teen into 20s, because adolescents as well have problems dealing with being in clinic with four-year-olds running around. Uh, it, it is interesting, though, because at NYU, for example, uh, my practice became hugely adult, and we would see uh, a combination of the adults, including some much older adults uh, with primary brain tumors, and the children. And I guess perhaps because I and my nursing colleagues were somehow more sensitized, appreciative of this, and expectant of some of the problems, anticipating some of the problems that could arise, um, it worked well. And what we found is that the adults felt with all those kids around them, my goodness, if these little children can do so well tolerating all this, so should I. And the kids just thought they were, that the adults were somebody else's parents, you know, the, the, the little <laughs> ones. And it actually worked well. It was more, the, and we, we, we um, got information and feedback from the, from the patients, adult and the, the parents of children in this regard. It's, it was more the nursing and physician staff that had difficulties adjusting to this than it was the patients. Uh, but clearly for it to work well, the nursing staff have to be on board. And I think that's become more and more cell tumors um, of the brain. Uh, and it was then and still remains to the present time uh, of great personal interest to me because my first cancer that I had at 26 years of age uh, was a germ cell tumor, um, not of the brain, but as the most common type of germ cell tumor, which occurs in uh, men in their uh, 20s, teens, 20s, and 30s, which is testicular cancer. Um, and mine didn't behave. I had um, um, uh, not only a recurrence at just uh, um, seven to eight months after initial presentation, but metastasis to my lungs. And back in 1976, I wasn't supposed to have survived that. So having done so, I think had a profound impact in making me the kind of cockeyed optimist uh, that I have remained hopefully ever since. Um, you know, a disease is not curable 
until it is cured. And I took that attitude um, with myself back in 1976, although I didn't know much about the treatment of cancer in those days, um, but responded to people, uh, innovative people that suggested certain drug treatments for me that were totally unproven in those days uh, for testicular cancer. Uh, and here I am all 40 odd years later, but I've also applied those principles throughout my entire career and have continued um, in the last four years that I've been confronting multiple myeloma to apply those same principles to myself the second time around. Um, why should I, uh, why should I not expect to myself what I haven't done for decades of uh, my children? Of course, it's a big age difference. Um, and I can say it's, I'm not doing too badly on it because after four years of dealing with this, I'm in a deep remission. Uh, I'm in great shape physically as well as uh, uh, cognitively. Uh, at least I hope I'm coming off as okay cognitively. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I'm doing very well with this process. So that personal impact not only influenced my interest uh, in central nervous system germ cell tumors, uh, which is an amazingly, as you well recognized, complex set of, of tumors, um, uh, but also in, in uh, my own practice of medicine as a pediatric uh, brain tumor uh, doctor. I, I think that helped to answer your questions there. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Um, and I think we would say, or I would say that uh, you are indeed a, um, uh, a, um, a terrific clinician and researcher, but you're really very much a patient advocate because that comes from self-advocacy at the beginning. And that's certainly what you did. It sounded like you did at the age of 26 and what you continue to do today. Um, and, and that might lead me to kind of my next question, which is what kinds of things have you learned from the patients and families that you've um, worked with over the years? Uh, I've, I've learned so much, both directly as well as indirectly, sometimes through mistakes in conversations. Uh, you know, this isn't something how to deal with families that's taught you in very well in medical schools. I think maybe it, it's taught better than it was when I was in medical school <laughs> all those years ago. Um, but it was something that one learned, if you'll excuse the expression, by the seat of one's pants. And one made errors and one learned from the errors, and it was often the, pa the parents that would tell you, uh, you know, this was or it wasn't appropriate, or thank you for this, and that's, that was a great way of doing it, or other colleagues telling you, you know, that was a great way to do things, or you should have done this or done that or the other. But in a bigger way, I have to say that I've learned so much from the patients that didn't make it. Those are the patients that have stimulated me to press on and really try and make a difference and learn from the experiences with those patients and improve so that one could try uh, and avoid those things. Yes, there's no question. Uh, it, one gains tremendous strength um, emotional and, and mental strength from the successes, uh, there's no question about that. Uh, but in many ways, it's the, uh, the, the failures, if you like, the inability to cure and the loss of such children uh, that stimulates you to uh, really stay the course and work on and work harder to try and improve the outcome. And I should also say that it's seeing 
are children cured of their cancers, but with substantial late effects, uh, both from radiation therapy, from their disease and what have you, that has long stimulated me in the design and conduct of my practice and of, and of my academic practice in developing clinical trials to say that it's not enough just to cure our children. A primary study goal has also to be to document the preservation and improvement in the quality of life of those children. So for example, our Head Start trials uh, for young children uh, with medulloblastoma, the most common malignant brain tumor, as I mentioned earlier, for children, which is sought void radiation, uh, and while at the same time improved cure rate. Um, we had from the very outset perspective, uh, neuropsychological and psychological quality of life, uh, IQ testing and other more advanced testing. And we've published this uh, and presented this repeatedly, actually through the work of my wonderful colleague, who I think you may have met in the past, Dr. Stephen Sands, who is currently actually uh, chief of pediatric neuropsychology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where all of this started so many decades ago. <laughs> um, so, and we've continued to do that for all of our four prospective uh, Head Start trials over the last, uh, what is it, 30 odd years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's become crucial for us to show, yes, we can incure, improve the cure rate, but look, we're also preserving, indeed in, in many cases improving, but at least preserving the quality of life of these children through avoidance or minimization of radiation therapy. So um, my patients have been the ones that have taught me the need for all of that uh, over, the, over the decades. So it, it seems to me that both what you've learned from your patients, maybe as well as I'm sure your personal experience, you have a really innate ability to understand that there's a balance between uh, extending life and quality of life, um, and that listening is so important. Um, and so, what I what I what I'd love to ask you about is maybe more at the kind of the healthcare system level, or or at least the the hospital or institutional level. Which is, are we getting better at being sensitive and listening to? What, what patients are telling us. And sometimes they're not directly saying that to us, but some, but there are, maybe their caregivers are, are saying that, or that we are just seeing it on their faces or whatever it might be. I mean, I think that the experience in this, I think, when did you leave Memorial Sloan Kettering? Um, 19, oops, 19. 94? 89, 87. No, sorry, 89, 1997, 1997. I went to NYU uh, from okay. and it was in, okay. in 1997 okay. where I learned a lot um, about what you're just asking. Um, because as I said to you at NYU, as I said previously, uh, a lot of my practice was taking care of adults with mm -hmm. primary brain cancer. And it was at that stage that um, I really learned the truth of the, the sense that many of us had and often joked about over the years. When I said to you in the beginning, pediatricians are the nicest kind of doctors. <laughs> have a very different approach to our patients 
than adults do towards their adult adult yeah. practitioners towards their adult patients. I've often felt um, uh, that you know you can't BS your your children the way you can adults. <laughs> um, obviously, the relationship is different when you've got a, a parent who's incredibly involved in the care because it's their child that's being treated. Uh, but there is no doubt that in general, uh, there is a big difference between the way adults talk with and talk to um, uh, their, their adult patients from the way most pediatric oncologists and neuro-oncologists uh, treat uh, and talk with and talk to. But across the board, I would say to you that I, I do see and I have seen uh, significant improvements over the years, both in the way um, uh, the parents of young children, uh, the children themselves, adolescents and adults are, are included and talked with rather than talked at by their physicians. Thank you. I, I think that um, because I was treated way back when, I think that something, and we've you know, we talked a little bit about the, the young adult experience. Something I really struggled with, or a couple, is that um, there was always this assumption that my parents should be in the room. And um, that was right. And, and I mean, some, some of the providers like you, um, and in particular, I remember my neurosurgeon at Mount Simon, we were very, very careful about that. But other folks just assumed that my parents should be there and or that they should be included in the discussion or that I shouldn't be given separate, separate. time before we bring in my anybody from my family caregivers and, and for part of that discussion. And I think um, I think that 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 I, I'm glad to hear you say that there's a, a greater level of listening there. But, you know, I think that was certainly a challenge for me. I think something else that was um took me a long time to unravel was that um, um, uh, as you well know, uh, brain tumor treatment is um, physically, emotionally, mentally challenging. It just is. And I think that something that I felt in it took me a long time to sort of work through this was that again, maybe back to this kind of systems idea was that there were things that happened um, what, during my treatment, which weren't necessarily part of the direct treatment, often other things that um, made me feel angry. Right. So there was um, uh, developing a fever. Right. And that was always, you would, if, if you developed a fever, somebody was supposed to, contact the more I don't know if they do now Memorial Sloan Kettering didn't have a emergency room they had this thing called the what urgent care I think it was and uh, somebody should call urgent care and check in there and find out and so my caregiver one of my caregivers I develop a fever after a treatment and one of my caregivers calls and the first question he is asked is well is 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 your loved one going to be dying at home so I thought to my, in, in retrospect, I mean, it was, I can laugh at that, but it was just the most invisible thing. And then I'm admitted, but I'm not admitted to the pediatric service because I'm an adult. <laughs> and I end up languishing there 
And ultimately, because I had a good friend who was a physician, um, and I my fever went down within, I don't know, 24 hours or something, but they continued to sort of pump me full of fluids and they won't release me. So uh, eventually I ended up, I mean, this is maybe one of my moments of truly advocating for myself. I ended up uh, checking out against medical advice because, uh, you know, because there was a sense that they were clueless. They weren't looking at me as an individual. They weren't making sure that the pediatric team that was treating me was well included in the conversations about my care. And that's, again, more of a hospital or systems-based kind of challenge. And I think um, I work at a cancer center now. And so I, I, I think that while there's a lot of good intent towards patient-centered care and multidisciplinary, well-organized, well-integrated care, it doesn't always happen. And I think that that's, uh, yeah, I'm go- so I think I'm just glad to hear that, that you're, that you've, you've always thought that way and that you think there, there's been progress there. But I think the common thread through that experience of your own that you've just described is really a lack of communication, communication with your major physicians, but more importantly, communication with you. Right. Explaining to you what the hell was going on at yeah. the time and why they wanted to do this and keep you in and give you antibiotics and what have you. Um, And so it's communication, which is the the thread that is torn apart, um, whether it's between physicians, uh, between the physician and his his, uh, patients or other healthcare providers. uh, That's a major thread. And sadly, that's a human frailty. And um, (laughs) without good training, and sometimes even with good training, different personalities uh, will respond in different ways. You know, um, it's, it, I wish I could say, tell you and reassure you that's been eradicated completely the problems <laughs> that you went through. It hasn't, but it has definitely improved. And part of the improvement is because Patients, uh, the parents of children and adolescents and young adults and others have become more forthright in um, asking, you know, why and expecting quite rightly uh, real, not BS answers to those questions. That's, those are entitlements, absolute entitlements. And a long time ago, it wasn't like that. The philosophy was one of um, patronization and paternalism. I'm the doctor. I know better than you. I've been doing this for years. You're just the patient. This is, you do as I say. That doesn't wash, whether you're dealing with pediatric patients or adult patients. On the other hand, the other end of the spectrum that I've seen, not so much in pediatric oncology, but I have encountered in the adult world, is the, as I said, the other extreme, where especially with intelligent patients, the physician says to you, well, nobody knows exactly what's the best uh, treatment approach here. Uh, You go and read up and come back and tell me what you want. That is totally inappropriate. It lays a whole guilt trip, not only upon the patient, the adult patient himself, but upon his family or family members that are working with him. The responsibilities here for physician and in optimal communication with the patient and family is to provide 
all the options, all the options, whether you're at an institution offering a particular clinical trial or not, you present what are the other options that might be available somewhere else. But then ultimately not just present the options, but if you're a physician, a specialist worth your salt, you also come down with your own recommendation and explain that recommendation. And if you can't justify that recommendation to your patient, to the parents of a child or the, the older patient, then, you know, that's you're not worth you're not worth it all the trial's not worth it all the <laughs> or you should go get a second opinion right so. second opinion <laughs> and that's very important when there are very difficult especially in some of the um, the brain tumors that we have to deal with with children and with adults for that matter second opinions are very can can be very very valuable and very very important and you're entitled as a patient the parents to ask for those uh, and to not expect any um, repercussions. Uh, you certainly want to be treated by a physician whose ego is intact enough not to be, um, uh, you know, um, paranoid. Um, that's a strong term, <laughs> <Right>. but you know, <laughs> to get about you requesting a second opinion. Those days should have long passed. Right. Right. Well. Uh, I, I think you you know you set out here what we need to uh, establish as our kind of future future medical system, if you will, or at least our cancer care system. 